everyone, welcome back. This is Vadim and Sergey, and we're the mentors, mentoring mentees that want to be mented into mint. Mm, memorable. Mint. Okay. Uh, <laughs> that was our attempt at uh, humor to start the episode. Most of you have already probably already shut this off and moved on to the next one. But those of you that stuck, have stuck around, well, you know you. what? Entrepreneurship is all about failure, and we fail to make our audience laugh all the time. <laughs> Experimentation. Uh, okay, it's already 30 seconds and we still haven't said anything substantive. So today we will talk about things that hopefully you can learn from. Um, and as we promised, this is a continuation of the last episode about uh, finding a co-founder. And so we're going to talk about a little bit down the line. You've, you've worked with someone already uh, for some time, and now uh, it's time to negotiate your equity. So we're going to talk about equity splits. Uh, we're going to talk about when it's the right time to incorporate your business or to create a business entity of any type. Uh, and then we're going to talk about something else that happens every once in a while. It's happened to us several times, and that's founder breakups and how to deal with them. The first thing that I'll say is that people place way too much importance on holding on to every bit of equity. Now, I'm not saying that you should just give away your equity willy-nilly. It's actually tied directly to uh, your motivation to even run the business. But in the end of the day, when you're looking for partners, when you think that you're at a point where you need to add somebody to the team, you can't be stingy about equity. And that's a mistake that we made early on in our sort of startup or entrepreneurial career is placing too much importance on having as much equity and keeping as much equity as possible when, in fact, sometimes it would make sense to bring in a partner. And remember, 100% of zero is still zero. Well, that is a fact. Uh, that math works out well, Vadim. You have to remember that math. <laughs> in the end of the day, uh, the the equity is really all about incentives, right? I mean, it's, it's a way of compensating somebody. It gives somebody ownership. And so you want your co-founders to feel like they have ownership and they have skin in the game. So you want to give them something substantial, I think, if, if we're talking about from a position of offering equity to somebody uh, or negotiating equity with somebody, let's say if you brought them on a little bit later. So as we mentioned before, uh, having this conversation as early as possible is the best uh, thing that you can do. Um, there is no exact time frame, but don't wait six months or a year after both you and your co-founder put a ton of work into the company and then have a conversation about how much percentage each of you owns because typically what happens at that point is one of the people had uh, different expectations than the other person and that relationship might not last too long thereafter. Keyword there, expectations. We mentioned this in the last episode as well, but uh, whether a founder is happy with the outcome of what they receive as far as equity goes uh, or not happy completely depends on what they expect, what they feel like they deserve and what they thought in, in going into it they would get, which is why having this conversation as soon as possible uh, within even the first month of working with that individual is so important. So how do you think about that equity split? Of course, there's a number, uh, I think an infinite amount of factors that can go into it. And we'll talk a little bit about some of those factors. Uh, but it's just as much about expectations and just as much about uh, sort of emotional decisions as it is anything else here. But uh, how can we even start to give people a little bit of, uh, let's say, a framework of how they can come up with this decision of who should get how much? Sure. Think about when you're negotiating a salary, for example. Uh, you have an idea, obviously there's market forces, but you have an idea of what you're worth. Well, 
when you're starting a company, a lot of times you're not getting compensated at all monetarily. Monet, monet, monetarily? Is that it? Yeah. Um, and so basically the percentage of the company or the equity ownership is your compensation. So you should start thinking about it in terms of, okay, how much value am I bringing to the company? How much of my impact uh, will, will be felt um, and will ultimately decide whether or not it will be successful or not. You know, when you're working on a startup idea, when you're working on anything that is unproven, in the end of the day, your goal is to generate revenue, get customers, X, Y, Z, A, B, C, you and me, baby. <laughs> no, but you have to, uh, you have to get to a point where, um, you're proven a little bit and, uh, you know, revenue and customers is a good barometer for that. So, are you going to be responsible for bringing in revenue? Are you going to be responsible for bringing the product? Start breaking down the different people in the company or the different partners and what contribution they will ultimately have whether to whether or not the, the business will be successful. How Another way to think about it is how critical is this individual to the organization now and how critical will they be a year from now or two years from now? If that person is gone, would that company be able to exist or would it be much harder to find a replacement? And that sort of helps you start thinking about, uh, start thinking about really how much somebody should get as far as ownership of the company. So the default answer and the comfortable answer that most founding teams go to is, is what, Sergey? I bet you guys probably already know. Everybody, let's get let's have equal equity. Let's have equal equity split. Let's get the same thing so we're all happy. Let's cut the pie equally. <laughs> well, uh, it, it, yeah. it sounds neat, um, but this isn't an episode and of it, Brady Bunch. Yeah. <laughs> Brady, and you know, and, this is life. And, and, and not to say that it never works, right? I mean, there have been successful companies there where people had close to equal equity. Uh, perhaps they were lucky that the relationships never strained so much. There are a multitude of factors that could go into why that works for somebody. But the way we think about it, at least in our personal experience and, uh, and what we've seen, is it's actually better to have at least one person have more of the company than the other because that sort of sets this implicit expectation that that's the individual who sets the direction for the business. Because as as we said, mentioned in the last episode, you do need somebody who really drives the business, sets the direction, sets the vision for where the product is going to go. And ultimately, the person that uh, everyone looks to to make a final decision when there's difficult moments in the company. And there will be difficult moments. And um, in the end of the day, someone has to be responsible for taking the blame so to speak. So when, when your servers are down or, you know, when, uh, when the customer receives a product that they, uh, that they didn't expect, um, the final version, uh, whose fault is it? In the end of the day, the fault lies on the shoulders of the CEO, the, the, the ultimate decision maker. Uh, and part of that is, involves having a little bit more equity to, to feel the burden of that, if you will. Um, because in the, when things go wrong or when there's difficult moments, Everybody usually looks at to that one person. Yeah, they absolutely do. And, you know, the reason why there's no blanket answer as to who should get how much equity is also depends on the business. If you think about it, if the business, is, let's say the technical component, if it's a technology product, is a big component, but it's not necessarily, uh, you know, a super high-tech product, uh, and it's fairly simple to build, and the business is going to completely live and die by one of the founders' ability to uh, find customers, sell, let's say, to businesses if it's a B2B product, and find investors, well, then that person really needs more equity. On the flip side, 
if the product is highly technical, you need some sort of technical expertise that's very difficult to get in the market. The person is very valuable in the open market. And um, and today and the future of the business will live and die by that technical individual's ability to create and continue to innovate on the product, then that person probably deserves more equity than the business one. And then there's examples like Airbnb, where the success of the business and especially the early growth, well, hell, the, the growth in general, I would say, uh, was uh, re- really relied heavily on good design. And I believe several of the founders went to RISD, Rhode Island School of Design, uh, and they really had that background. And so because the uh, success of the company depended on having good design, I'm certain that uh, those design-oriented founders got uh, compensated with a lot of equity as well. Now, a quick word about um, number of team members on your founding team. Um, You know, sometimes people feel like they have to involve everybody uh, and their uh, and their mother and their mother's dog. Um, of course, you can have a office pet, uh, but don't give them any equity. But if you have five or six people on the founding team, um, even if one of them has a little has a little bit more equity, clearly everybody's going to be a little bit more diluted. A note on that is pretty simple. If you need five or six people on the founding team, by all means, go ahead and you know put together the team that makes sense for your business. There is no again blanket answer there, but most companies can start off with two or three co-founders and everybody else can be an early employee that also gets equity, by the way, but doesn't necessarily get founder stock. Yeah, and and it's fine to start a business with your friends and a lot of investors love it when you start a business with your friends, especially if you've worked on businesses with them or products with them in the past and you're a proven team that functions well together. But it, it, it may be a, a, a sign that you have too many people if you have, let's say, five or six founders and there's three or four business people and you just don't need three or four business people and you're just trying to yeah. justify – you're trying to justify for yourself why you should have that many business people from day one. You're probably doing something wrong. If it's hard for you to think of uh, what responsibilities any person in the founding team should take on uh, or if it feels like somebody's not really doing as much work, you need to trim the fat. Uh, you, 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 you started with a really big team and you need to cut it down and that's okay to do, even if you made that mistake. So just to put some numbers behind what we're talking about now, we'll give you an example of an equity negotiation that we had with our technical co-founder when we were working on uh, Tacit. Mm-hmm. And so we had been working on this product, trying to prove it out ourselves. This is Vadim and I. Uh, for the better part of six or seven months. Uh, We were doing it on the side, but we were uh, putting in significant amount of work into that. Um, And as a matter of fact, we we did, we found our, we happened to find our co-founder on uh, Elance at the time it was, it's Upwork now, and we were willing to pay this individual for a prototype. It just so happened that we worked well together, we ended up becoming co-founders. But in the beginning, we proved out demand for the product and we were willing to pay somebody to build the initial version of it. So we already came for, came to this negotiation from a position of strength because we already had a bit more skin in the game. And just so you guys know, you know, if you think, oh, great, well, these guys had some money to spend on an initial prototype. Uh, we went to credit card debt for this, oh. but uh, also it wasn't uh, a ton of money. Uh, you know, it wasn't twenty, thirty thousand dollars that we spent to build some kind of website or web app or or, pro- or program. Uh, we, I believe, only spent a few thousand dollars. Uh, I think it was actually uh, actually just about a thousand dollars. So. Uh, for our, the first version, and then yeah. we we spent a little bit more as we continued to work with uh, who would ultimately become our co-founder. Yeah. Uh, but it wasn't a lot of money for what we were getting out of it, which was something that was functional that uh, customers could start using. 
And we knew we weren't going to spend more than one or two thousand dollars on a prototype, right? We were not. We didn't want to get into big debt here. We just wanted to spend some, invest in the business essentially to prove it out. But um, what what ended up happening is when we found our future co-founder on Upwork, uh, he was actually charging more than what we could afford. I believe it was fifty five dollars an hour, and we knew it would take at least two weeks to build a product, right. uh, the initial version of the product. And uh, so we came to him asking, because we were a startup and it was just two of us, we came asking if he could drop his fee for us. And he did. I think he, we ended up dropping it to $29 an hour um, because he, w- we, as we found out through the conversation, he was interested in joining an American startup. He was from Germany uh, and he wanted to see if potentially this could work out as a co-founder relationship. So for him, it was worth to drop his fee to test the relationship, so to speak. So we, we ended up working together for several months uh, and... Uh, you know, maybe it was a few weeks worth of work. It wasn't, uh, he wasn't working 40 hours a week on it, but we had time. Uh, and, and basically we wanted to extend the time just to see how is it to work with this person. Um, we were essentially testing how would it be if we partnered together and it was awesome. Uh, we had really great, clear communication. He was always on top of everything. He asked the right questions, um, when we would have our weekly calls. And by the way, when you're working with somebody, especially remotely, make sure you have these check-in calls um, just so you at least stay on the same page. He believed in our vision. And more importantly, we were actually doing stuff, um, not just waiting for him to build a prototype. We were scheduling calls with um, potential customers. We were giving him live feedback effectively that we would collect after doing 10 or 15 calls in a given week uh, with prospective customers. So he was showing us value and he was proving to us that he'd be great to work with as a partner and that he actually cared about what we were building. And on the flip side, we were building and showing value as well in many other ways. And when you're working towards a potential partnership and eventually you'll have that negotiation about equity or, or compensation or really anything, responsibilities, uh, negotiations are all about how much leverage you can develop uh, over a certain period of time. And we use that word in a positive way. I mean, uh, in the end of the day, it's just a conversation between two people. Like Sergey said, there's emotions involved and there's different expectations. But these things could be molded by the things that you do around it, the work that you do before it, uh, and the ultimate leverage that you're going to have as you come into the conversation. Leverage is absolutely everything in a negotiation. So not only were we already working on this product and testing demand, proving it before we ever contracted this individual out... But we were also in the United States. This person wanted to work for a company in the United States, even if it meant not getting paid a salary. So automatically, we were coming from a position of strength here. So we knew we could ask. We we knew what we could essentially ask for. Now, we had a pretty early on. We had the conversation with him that we want to explore whether we could be partners. Vadim and I, before we even came to this negotiating conversation, we already knew that we were gonna uh, split equity between us equally. This, again, doesn't always work, but we are brothers. We're twin brothers. We're putting exactly the same amount of work, and we actually have very, very similar backgrounds. We were going to be sort of really, truly co-CEOs of this business. And so for us, it made sense to have equal equity on our side. And I will, by the way, say that even though um, we did create a co-CEO type of uh, management structure, uh, this doesn't work for most people. Uh, we're in a unique position because we're brothers and we're twins and we know that no matter what, our sibling relationship is more important than any business that we're going to start. Um, that's not necessarily the case with if you start a, f- a business with another friend or even another sibling or relative. 
And we knew that we would ha- be able to handle the, the sort of r- tough questions from investors about, oh, you guys are brothers, or you guys have the same amount of equity, and what happens if you brothers fight? Because, you know, I have sons and they fight. Our, our simple answer was, listen, this isn't our first uh, time working together. We've been working together since we were kids. We've been starting businesses together since we were 19 years old. We know how to function as a team. And uh, a note on decision-making, you know, there came a time where we would have to have discussion about certain things. First of all, we were good at dividing responsibilities and basically we had this implicit trust where let's say Sergey's in a meeting or Sergey has to make a decision and I can't be a uh, part of it. It's we, we allowed each other to just make decisions without letting the other person know. There was just implicit trust there. Uh, but when we did come to a time where we didn't agree on something, we knew that we could always talk through it. And every time that did happen, uh, you know, we're both big fans of logic and doing what's best for the um, for the well-being of the company and everybody that works there. And because we looked at looked the world through a similar lens, it really made those conversations fairly straightforward. Um, you know, we, we, we take things from a similar perspective and uh, put val- have similar morals and values. And so that was never really very difficult for us. But when there's two strangers involved... Um, it's not always that easy. So I wouldn't necessarily recommend a co-CEO or you know equal equity split like that, but it can work. So going back to the numbers here, so Vadim and I knew we wanted to have a good amount together collectively more than half of the company. So we knew we, we actually wanted at least 40% each of the business. Um, so we knew how much sort of the cap of how, what's the most we would be willing to offer to our technical co-founder. Um, and that number in our heads was about 20%, really any more than that, we wouldn't be super comfortable doing it. Um, and we ended up offering 15% again, because we wanted to see if there was some room for negotiation there. We also thought it was a fairly fair number considering he was working on the business part-time and we were about to go full-time right. and there was a couple other factors there. So we offered, and we paid him in the beginning and we did, we paid him in the beginning when we did not pay ourselves. You can anything. always offer a little bit less equity or percentage when there's a salary or, or, or actual monetary compensation involved as well. Yeah. So we offered 15% uh, and Vadim, what happened next? So we offered 15% and uh, he came back to us and he was prepared, which is good. Actually, we appreciate that in a conversation. He came back and he said uh, that he would actually be more comfortable with 25%. Uh, and so he wasn't being pushy, uh, which again, we, we liked working with him. We knew that it was going to be a normal conversation, but these conversations can feel a little uncomfortable sometimes. It's not natural. It's like sales. You know, Sometimes you have to ask for money. Uh, sometimes you have to ask for somebody to pay on time. Things like that. And so this is one of those conversations that's uh, not necessarily that comfortable, but you just have to do it. Uh, And so he came back with 25%. And uh, that's where, you know, that leverage that we built up over time. And we had basically, because we were prepared for this conversation, we had several points that Sergey's going to walk you through in about a second uh, that we mentioned uh, that uh, basically proved to him in a logical way why 25% was a bit higher than what we were comfortable with. And because we started off at 15% and he started off at 25%, it's called a bracket, we were able to meet down the middle. So the main points of leverage for us, again, were the fact that we were building the company here, we were going full time, that it was going to be very sales heavy. Uh, and we not only had the relations, but we, were the, we had the skill to go out and get the customers. And we were also going to be doing entirety of the fundraising. We were going to be doing the entirety of the all the really operations, legal stuff, everything. Hiring. And this is stuff that our co-founder or our future co-founder explicitly told us he was not interested in doing. And that's so made, that made it a little bit easier because we were essentially going to handle everything else, including 
uh, providing him with a direction as to what to build, what actually to execute on on the on the development side. So it was very easy to prove, you know, well, this is how much contribution we're going to have to the company, and here's how it's being reflected in the equity split. And by the way, let's look at the market here. Uh, we're building a sales software app. We know that we're going to have to raise funding in the future if we're going to be able to compete. And so because that's a necessity for this business to be successful, that's another thing that we're going to have to shoulder down the line. So we we got on uh, we we discussed this over a Skype call and Ian was still in Germany when we were uh, discussing the, having this negotiation. Yeah. We got on a Skype call and we said twenty five was a little bit high and and he was candid with us and he told us that listen guys, um, I want to feel like a true partner, like a true co founder. That's my whole reason for doing this. I'm, I really am not comfortable taking anything less than twenty percent. And that's the number that we were ready to give up. And to be honest, you know, if he was really, really firm and uh, wanted to go up to, let's say, 22%, we valued our relationship enough and already learned from our past mistakes of, again, holding on to too much equity where it was okay. I think we would have still done it. I'm not sure how good we would have felt. And by the way, that's pretty important as well. You know, if you're going to have buyer's remorse or seller's remorse, I don't know, the, the sentiment is, is the same. You know, if you're going to regret uh, the, the ultimate agreement that you make, then no one's going to be happy. Uh, and that also isn't good for how the relationship ultimately ends up playing out. So we got lucky because he was happy ultimately with what he got, and we uh, gave up more, a little bit more than what we initially thought we could, or uh, we would, um, but we were okay with that. So that was essentially the whole negotiation. Um, what we want to talk about briefly here as well is timing of actually creating the physical agreements, uh, the documents that are going to outline the, the equity split. And this is something called the founder agreement. Um, it's called something a little bit different depending on the type of entity you have, you're creating. So it's, it's important to understand that uh, it's not legally enforceable, the agreement that you just made with your co-founder, unless you have you create an entity with a founder agreement that um, actually issues shares and you create a vesting agreement, etc. So you actually have to go through that process in order for it to be official. So to answer the question of when is it the right time to incorporate, I would say, uh, of course, again, it depends. But um, one thing is, once you've worked enough with your future co-founder or your partners and you know that you're in it for the long haul together, that's probably the right time to actually get it down on paper and incorporate, whether it's a C-Corp or an LLC. We can have a separate discussion uh, in another episode, what makes sense there. But also, uh, be careful and don't incorporate too early. And why, why do I say that? Well, you still might fail. <laughs> And uh, that's we're, we're big fans and proponents of, uh, of of proving out the concept as much as possible before you start investing um, auxiliary fee. I, I don't know what word, but, but basically investing money into the company that that needs to be invested, but doesn't necessarily give you output and contribute to the bottom line. Uh, like marketing dollars, for example, right? Um, incorporating costs money. Uh, you will pay franchise taxes every year, even if you don't make any revenue. You will have to pay a lawyer to set up all these documents. You will have to pay an accountant to um, do accounting for a business, even if you have no revenue, because a business is its own entity and it has assets and uh, and, and, and you might have some liabilities and things like that. And so th when you're thinking about incorporating, I would say hold off until you feel like you have to, but... In terms of equity split and getting that down on paper, 
once you have that conversation and the agreement is made, you should get it down on paper right away. Now, Sergey's right. I mean, it's it's mostly enforceable once you're incorporated and you know the stock uh, is is allocated to each founder. But what we did with Anim is after we had our conversation, uh, we put it in an email so that it was written. And I asked uh, our founder to just respond to that email, confirming that he received it and that he agrees with it. And so now we had a paper trail. And, you know, what's legally enforceable or not sometimes is area, just, just like non-competes and non-solicit agreements. But at the end of the day, if you have it on paper, it's always better. Better than nothing. It's better than nothing. Yeah. And you have a proof point. And also, when somebody responds to an email like that, they already feel like they committed to it as well. So it's an emotional commitment not and, and something that's on paper as well. Uh, another really easy way or the, I would say the simplest way to think about whether you should incorporate or not um, is – whether what what you think is the likelihood of you or your company being sued is and the higher the likelihood that you might get sued the better the the more reason for you to incorporate so really quickly on incorporation i think we could talk have a whole episode about this and perhaps we can interview one of our um attorney friends uh, in one of the episodes to dive some a little bit deeper into most of this stuff we'll think of fun questions to ask them because lawyers are just but some of them are good (laughs) we love lawyers um Hopefully they can sponsor this podcast <laughs> down down the line. Now, Dean, watch this yourself. podcast is brought to you by Brown Brothers. Wait, that's not. Uh, no, that's not. Okay, so uh, easiest way to think about it is: Am I starting to let's say to have a substantial amount of customers? Like, if you're making a couple hundred dollars here or there, no one's going to sue you. But if you have a fifty thousand dollar enterprise customer and you're plugging into a data source that they own, and there's a possibility that, that you might mess up their data or something that you're just, it, you're, it's a little bit more risky and maybe they could sue you sometimes. So once you start having bigger customers, you should probably already be incorporated, right? Yeah. And just pure, uh, to break it down really, really simply for, for folks that aren't too familiar with corporations, corporations are their own entity. And that's probably one of the best things about incorporating or setting up an LLC or just creating any business structure uh, is limiting your own liability and um, basically any liability uh, that uh, or, or any lawsuit that happens is going to be a lawsuit against the company and not you. So if the company goes down and has to file for bankruptcy because you can't afford uh, the legal uh, battle, you don't have to sell your house for it. Yeah. And so the more successful the company is becoming, the more likelihood that customers, vendors, your own co-founders could potentially sue you down the line. So you'll want to be incorporated there. Uh, An important distinction, uh, you want to incorporate with an entity that actually provides liability protection. LLCs do that. C-Corps do that. Many other corporate entities do that as well. If you just created a simple partnership or if you have a sole proprietorship that does not have any liability protection, and that means that, let's say, a vendor or a debtor can go after your own personal assets. Whereas, as Woody mentioned, if you have a corporate entity, you can just, let's say someone sues you and you have to, you can't afford to pay them, they can never go after your own personal assets and you can just close down that company, essentially file for bankruptcy and, and not be affected. Donald Trump has done that many times. Yes, he does. Yes, he yes. Uh, people, a lot of people don't know or misunderstand, you know, he has had a lot of bankruptcies, but not personal bankruptcies. These are all uh, bankruptcies for the businesses that he ran. And maybe that was the right decision for, for him at the time. Who knows? So for the last few minutes of this episode, we wanted to talk about breakups. Uh, when a lady leaves and breaks your heart. <laughs> um, That's not what this podcast is about. No, it's not. But if you guys wanted us to talk about it, <laughs> we, we, we have some experience we, with that. We've written a lot of love songs. Oh, boy. Um, uh, but uh, but no, founder breakups. First of all, why are they called breakups? Well, like we said before, uh, 
founder relationships are like marriages. You you both have an asset on the line, which is your child, which is your baby, um, if you got them pregnant. No, <laughs> which is your child, which is your company. And so um, there may come a time, and this happens to a lot of people, and it's happened to us several times, uh, where either you want to quit, by the way, or one of the founders decides that they they should move on, that, um, you know, for whatever reason, they don't want to be part of the company anymore. And this could happen at any moment, by the way. Uh, this is why it's so important to set expectations throughout the whole lifetime of the companies that so that you always know uh, that you're on the same page, that you're not really surprised when something like this happens. But surprises do happen. It's happened to us. Uh, it could happen in six months. It could happen in a year. It could happen in five years. You really never know. So, Sergey. What happens when uh, founders uh, a founder wants to leave? Do they just walk away with the whole piece of the pie that they got? Well, so it really depends what you what steps you've taken to protect the company in the early days. So most investors will require you to create a vesting schedule or a vesting agreement for even all the founders. This is something that those of us who are startup employees are familiar with. We get stock options. Those are vested over time, right? Sometimes there's a cliff. You don't start You don't start getting that equity until maybe a certain point in time, like a year of working in that company, and then you start accumulating it over time. Let's say every additional month you're in that company. But the idea is you get your equity over time. So if you did not have a vesting agreement in place with your co-founder and they decide to leave, then yes, they would walk away with all of their equity and it would be significantly more difficult for you to, let's say, raise money down the line or incentivize future employees because you have less of the company left to give away. Or even incentivize yourself to continue working through the difficult moments, right? If somebody walked away with a huge chunk of the company and they're out there basically waiting for an exit event, but it's gone and uh, no one's even adding value for the equity that's not there, you're not going to feel very, very motivated to uh, push through the hard times. So that's why uh, having vesting schedules, vesting agreements is important. But you know, perhaps your founder breakup occurs a couple years down the line where that individual already has a good amount of their equity vested. Uh, and so what happens then? Well, if a good amount of their equity is vested... You have a couple of options, um, and uh, by the way, a lot of the stuff depends on your relationship with the founder. Uh, the one thing we'll, we always say is don't burn any bridges. This is the case for any jobs that you might have, but certainly with any potential or any partners that are in your business as well. So we actually had this happen to us, right, where one of our co-founders, uh, after working with us for a few years, decided that it was still a little bit too risky for them and they wanted to do something else. And so um, we were actually surprised by this, even though we had a really good relationship. So it just goes to show you can't really prepare for this stuff. Uh, well, you can prepare for it, but you emotionally <laughs> might not be prepared. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, that it's one of those things that when you get the news, it's obviously going to impact your business uh, significantly, especially if they were responsible for a huge chunk of it. Uh, it's obviously going to take your concentration away from getting customers or raising money or whatever it is that you're trying to do because now you have to replace that person. And sometimes it means your company will fail. And that's okay. You have to be ready for that. But what do what did we do in that case, Sergey? Uh, so he came to us. I believe he sent an email saying, hey, guys, uh, listen, I think I need to move on to another uh, opportunity. Can we please talk? In the, uh, can we please meet next week? Uh, so obviously you want to do these things face-to-face whenever possible. So immediately, first thing we did uh, immediately after we got the email uh, and perhaps a few minutes after... 
uh, <laughs> stopping running around frantically. Honestly, and we crying were crying. Well, <laughs> yeah. we we almost. I mean, honestly, it was a very stressful period of time. Yeah. Uh, I remember reading that email and just being dumbfounded and thinking, "This is it. Our business is done. Like yeah. we are. How are we going to find another co-founder so so quickly? Right? We're running and out of cash." By the way, we were in the middle of uh, uh, some potential acquisition uh, conversations as well, where basically uh, we were going to get acquired, but it was, it was more of an acquisition hire situation and so really an aqua hire means that uh they're 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 the biggest asset that the company sees as acquiring you is the team and so when a third of the team leaves those conversations uh they they take a turn they shift a little bit (laughs) so we felt like we were a bit screwed but in the end of the day we can't force this individual to do something that they don't want to do so first thing we did is we called our lawyer because we we wanted to see what our options were and uh because we knew that this person actually already had a good amount of their equity vested we didn't want to just have them walk away with all of the equity. So um, essentially, we came up with a solution where we offer some financial compensation for that person to give up their equity. Now, again, as Vidi mentioned, if you don't have a, if you had a, not a good relationship or if the breakup was bitter, that person may not want to negotiate with you at all right. about you know buying them out or not. And as a matter of fact, we actually did not have any cash to buy the person out. So we took a little bit of a different position. We created something called a promissory note that told them that if and when we raised capital or we had significant revenue, because we hadn't, uh, we hadn't raised capital up until that point, if and when we raised money, that person would get compensated a certain cash amount from that fundraise. And so uh, the way we approached it with this individual, and he was a uh, he he was a smart guy. He he knew that uh, what we were saying made sense. Um, we told him that look, uh, if you just walk away with all of your equity right now, the business is doomed, and all of the work that you've done is is pretty much goes out the window because we're not going to be able to raise money with a co-founder that just left with a big chunk of the company. And if we can't, can't raise money, then we can't take the business to a point where it has enough revenue, et cetera. So instead of taking all the equity, why don't you let us buy the equity back with this promissory note of you getting paid in the future? And at least you'll have some cash compensation in the future. Otherwise, you're just not going to get any compensation, neither will we. And that was a really key thing to mention was, you know, yes, we appreciate the work that you've done. However, we're being placed in a difficult situation, which a smart person will understand. Uh, And if you want to retain value, then this is the best outcome. And of course, it followed with a little bit of negotiation as to how much cash I think we were going to give. We started off with a lower number. We agreed on something a little bit higher, but palatable. 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 Uh, but in the end of the day, because we were dealing with somebody that was intelligent and logical and we had a good relationship the, with Yeah, the, he was the whole reason why we uh, we brought him on as a co-founder is we knew that when times like this come, we would be able to have a, a normal human conversation with this person. Things ended off on a great note. Uh, and I actually ended up, I think six months later, giving him a, a, a recommendation um, you know, for, for another job when he was looking for a new job. And we still catch up once a year or so, um, you know, if it makes sense. And we have a good relationship. You never know. You know, this is why you don't burn bridges. This is why you uh, you want to always see things from the other person's perspective as well is you, you never know when you might want to partner with that person again or the entrepreneurial ecosystem, startup ecosystem is pretty small. People do talk. And so, you know, when you're talking to other partners or somebody that might know him or her uh, or the person with whom your relationship ended for now, 
you want them to sing to say good things about you, just like I did when I gave him a recommendation. Because I, I, I only really had good things to say about him. So even though the conversation is uncomfortable, uh, as a leader, as a CEO or whatnot, you have to be ready to have a conversation like this. Uh, you have to come prepared. Uh, you have to sort of put the wheels of preparation in motion very early on in the life cycle of the company with a vesting schedule and a cliff and all that good stuff um, uh, early on so that you are prepared for this type of uh, outcome. But uh, there is a way to do it in a clean way. So obviously, we hope that whatever co-founders you bring onto your team, you guys will have a, a lifelong relationship uh, and, will, and, and build an infinitely successful business. But things do happen. Unexpected things happen. Uh, and we just always have to know how to work through them. So in the next uh, episode, we are going to talk about actually getting your first dollar of revenue, a topic that we're super passionate about and, of course, is very important. That first dollar is the hardest. Uh, check out the show the notes. first dollar's the first hardest. Dollar. <laughs> it Maybe really is. I know. Because it is. It, it um, is. It's, uh, you know, you, people always uh, say in terms of price points, whether you charge somebody a dollar or a hundred dollars, doesn't really matter. Getting any money from somebody, getting anybody to give you money for whatever it is that you have to offer is a huge feat. Um, huge feat, at least 15 inch shoes. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> you should have seen the expression on Sergey's face. It was blank. We're going to edit this out from the shows. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, check out the show notes where we'll put some additional resources here uh, about how to negotiate co-founder equity. And uh, we can't wait to see you guys next week. Well, not see you, I guess. We, we won't see you. You'll hear us. So hear mentors, us next week. Mentors. <laughs> mentors. The mentors. Mentors.